Amen. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19 of Romans 16. They can be found on page 2 or in your Bible. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. When you read, watch out, I appeal to you, brother, watch out. What does Paul assume will take place, even in this healthy Roman church, while writing verse 17? What's he assuming that, that will take place? I mean, anytime Paul writes, remember, he's got something in his mind. The reason he's writing it, there's a reason always he writes things. There's a reason you write things. What is he assuming? Yes. Human nature. That the sinful fallen man will do what? Yes. So when he writes verse 17 and tells people to watch out for these people, he's assuming that people will cause divisions. There will be people in your church, in your good Christian Roman church, a church that is known for their love, a church that is known for their hospitality, a church that is known for their giving hearts. In that church, there were people that come in and cause divisions. And the, and the reason that divisions is so terrible, John 17, if you remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he says, I pray also for those who will not believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus Christ prayed that we'd be one. When he's going to Calvary, he's, he's praying that he makes us one. He says, I'm not praying for everyone. I'm praying for the church. Proverbs 6, there's six things that, that I hate. Look at verse 19. Did you recognize this? A person who stirs up conflict in the community. God says, I hate that. Titus 2. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Discussion question C. What two areas are these types of people divisive in? Can you see kind of a twofold area that Paul is talking about here? One is really easy, the other one may be a stretch, but Calvin stretched it and I think he's going here. It's definitely logical. Is there two areas that you see in there or just see one? Doctrinal is one, absolutely. Is there another area? Just, just divisions, right? Standard divisions. Cause divisions and they cause doctrinal divisions. And you can kind of say, well, isn't all thing doctrinally like you're not loving your neighbor you're not forgiving you're, you're you're judging a case could be made for that but but let's talk about the doctrine first people will try to come into the church and doctrinally cause divisions and this is a warning to the elders of the church if you're an elder in this church or one day may be called to be an elder it is your job to fight off the wolves To quote the Patriot, if you were here two weeks ago, sometimes a minister has to drive away the wolves. That's when the minister went and fought with the Revolutionary War. Anyway, 
warning to the elders, a warning to the deacons. You're going to see people that want to cause divisions over other things. Property, maybe. Don't like the way you set out the chairs. Ask Rodney Parkin. He's got a whole list. I remember him telling me when he was at Providence how many people call division over things and how many people come through the office. Warning to the teachers, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you teach women's classes, whether you teach a Bible study, guess what? You need to be on the lookout for those types of people that want to cause divisions doctrinally. You better be ready. Warning to the Bereans, that's you, that sit in this church. Please don't be naive. The greatest letter, I think the greatest letter we have in Scripture, I don't know if we can say that, because they're all great. But one of the most beloved in all of scriptures, one of the last things that is written, Paul is warning the church, watch out for people that cause divisions. The unity of the church is crucial. And people will doctrinally, we see it all the time with denominations, being ripped apart because people come in and doctrinally divide the church. Be on the lookout. Don't be shocked. Be grieved. It's sad that this happens, but don't be shocked. Please don't, I didn't see this coming. I'm warning you now, be ready. Paul is warning us, be ready. Romans 16, 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What is meant by bending the ear of a person? You ever hear that term? What's, what's meant by that? Get their attention. Entice them. Come here. Gossip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the next question is really important. Do you believe this divisive person that we're speaking about, hypothetically, no one in this church, but do you believe this divisive person believe they are sinning? No. I saw, I saw Jeff Loomis shake his head like, no, it was a big authoritative like exclamation point. No. Could you explain why you did that? It wasn't just a no under your breath. It was a big no. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. So, right, uh, you need to understand the heart of divisive people, they really think what they're doing is right. You need to understand that. With all sin, uh, if you've read anything from John Owen, if you've read anything from Thomas Watson, or even Thomas Brooks, these are like Puritans who understand sin. They must have been great sinners because they understood it really well, right? When you read these people, there's something that keeps coming up in all of their books. And as people, when they sin, they think they're doing what's right. No one's out trying to be divisive in and of themselves. They are convinced that what they are doing is right. Calvin calls them ministers of Satan. 
Why would he call them ministers of Satan? Well, I'm going to help you because of time constraints. Matthew 16. I have it right here on page 3. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and then be raised to life. But Peter takes him aside to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this will not happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Satan had convinced the apostle Peter that the cross was not the right thing to do. Peter thought what he was doing was absolutely right. Divisive people think that what they're doing is absolutely right. Screw tape letters. Have you ever read the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis? Yep. It's completely okay. My abstract brain doesn't always work. So, well, C.S. Lewis is interesting because, as you understand, screw tape letters is written from, uh, you could say, a general demon to a lower demon. And he's trying to teach the lower demon how to go out and be divisive and cause trouble within the church and within the world. And this one patient, they call him a patient, this one person had just come to know the Lord. And the demon was upset. Oh, no, I've lost one of my patients. And the head demon says, oh, no, 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 don't worry. You still, you still can get him. Look at the second paragraph. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Saying there's always a chance because you can get that person and they can start looking at all the obscure people. They can start judging people. They can say, you know what? I don't like this and that. Satan will still take a person who's professed to be a Christian and he will take Christians sometimes and convince them that what they're doing is absolutely right when, it has, when it's absolute sin. This is why divisions are in churches. Not because... Christian people want to destroy the church. They really think they have a right cause. And this is why you have to ask yourself this question. Am I being used by Satan? Yes, sir. That's the great key question. So, let me put this back on you guys. Yeah.
And David, I'm not going to ignore your question. I'm going to come to it. Can, w- would you mind if I answer it right behind F? My Thank you, Mr. Moderator. E, I, I'm going somewhere with this. E, what caused divisions in prior churches you attended? Anybody have a story? Please, don't, if, it, if it's not 10 years ago, I don't want to hear it. I don't want names. I don't want anything. Does anybody have anything? The volume of the music caused divisions in your church? And the type of music. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Nancy first. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh yeah. They felt that she felt justified and do what she was doing. Uh, anybody? Yes, Miranda. So even a, a, a lack of leadership can be divisive also. Yes, I'm going to take one more because I don't want anybody, there are no names. This has got to be at least 10 years old. I'm not looking for anything recent. As you see, there's, there's probably a hundred examples we could say of what type of division has happened inside of churches. But if you were to look in the future New Covenant, now I'm not asking you to be prophetic, but let's pretend you were looking in the future and you could. That's a terrible way to look at it. 
But what do you foresee based upon reality? What could take place at New Covenant with the visions? What should we be watching out for? See, the building campaign is going to be interesting. If you look on paper, it's one of the most unifying things a church could do. You'd think it would be great, right? We're all putting our money together, going to get a church. But wait till you have to pick the color of the carpet. Some of you have strong opinions on colors of carpets. Some of you are anti-carpet altogether, right? The color of the walls. I gave $10,000 and I don't get the color of my wall. I guarantee you what Satan's going to do in our building campaign is he's going to stir up division in your heart some way, somehow. And if you watch the voyage of the Don Treader, I'm sorry, I'm on C.S. Lewis kick here. Satan likes to get in your heart and stir up division even in your heart. He starts in your heart. You know, it doesn't start in the church. It starts in the heart of a person. And it's going to start in your heart, your discontentment. And if I'm correct, I would say, and, and there's elders who have been elders a lot, much longer than me, 99% of the divisions, at least in the PCA church, is not doctrinal. We have a doctrinal statement. We're kind of different than a lot of churches. Like, you know what the elders believe. We, we, we're public and ecclesial and over everything. You don't have to question, what does Pastor David believe? Just read his, his doctrinal statement. That's what he holds to. That's what he confesses. Most of the division I've seen in church has been over preferences and wisdom. And at the end of the day, the session has to make a decision. It is their responsibility. We can't just abdicate our responsibility and go, oh, I don't know what to do. With Jack and I and his mom, that's a whole other story for tonight. You can't abdicate. Yes, Mr. Brown. Yeah, I like that. I should have asked you beforehand and give me those one-liners. Yes. So true. I'm going to answer Pastor David's question now. How do you know when you're fulfilling your own appetite? 
you look at Ephesians 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that sentence is a part of the previous block of paragraphs, you could say. 22 starts about the codes of wives and husbands, children and parents. 21 stops. Look carefully, starting in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Are you willing to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? I think if you're not willing to submit to the session, if you don't have that friend that tells you, listen here, the decision you're making is idiotic. <laughs> do you have that friend that's willing to tell you the hard thing? Or do you only have friends that tell you what you want to hear? They're not much of a friend if they only tell you what you want to hear. And if you're not willing to subject what your thoughts are, if you're not willing to give them to someone with a lot of wisdom, probably going to have gray hair, if you're not willing to submit to them, hey, I'm thinking this. Is there a possibility I could be wrong? If there's no possibility you could be wrong, you may be. Doctrinally, you've got a whole bunch of elders who can help you understand if you're doctrinally wrong or right. But in preference-wise, this is where we learn to submit to one another. We go to the session. You know, the session is not made up of just Pastor David. Oh, David Prussia's the young guy now. Yeah, all right. But there are some older men who are elders who I go to for advice. That's a good way to start. Do you have to have it your way or can you go to another elder and say, I submit to you, could you help me understand? Go to one of the deacons, go to one of the men that's been in the presbytery for a long time, go to another woman and say, am I thinking straight? Is that helpful, Pastor David? What would you do? How would you know if your appetite's right or not, Pastor David? Well, you're absolutely right. The weaker brother, I, I should have went there, but my mind didn't go there because I'm the weaker brother. But thank you. 
Words of my grandpa, that dog will hunt. Yeah, I think you're right. He makes a great point. It's a weaker, stronger brother issue, right? You always, yeah. Well, let's, let's move on to E. What is interesting about the character mentioned in verse 20? Do you see a, a character that is mentioned in verse 20 that's very interesting in the book of Romans? Is there anything interesting about Satan being mentioned in 1620? It is a promise for Genesis. Yeah. Do you realize that Satan doesn't come up in the book of Romans till it's almost over? You know why? That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is your own heart. It may just be a passing comment, but it seems like he should be up front, right? No. Your biggest problem is your own sin. Your biggest problem is your father, Adam. That's your biggest problem. Now, Satan's terrible, but what's his prognosis? Well, it's not very good. It makes it the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a whole sermon being preached that how does God make peace? He does it through crushing. God makes peace often through crushing. And he crushed Satan. And as Rob already said, he, he advanced, if you look on page 5, that, that's a reference to Genesis, right? That's a reference to Genesis 3.15 where the, where the serpent's head is crushed. But I always want you to remember as you read Romans, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I understand that is in, uh, written by Paul to the church of Corinth. But you need to understand, you don't crush him through your strength and your power, you do it through the power of Christ. You stop your sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. We crush him. But it's because Jesus Christ has crushed him. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. What's the difference between a doxology and a benediction? I mean, not everybody at once. It's overwhelming when I see so many hands. It's hard to call on everyone. Very, very simply, you're right. Doxology is this praising. We sing the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We're praising him. A benediction is when God puts his stamp on us and blesses us. That's what a benediction is. That's why we close our service with a benediction. It is God blessing his people now there's some verses about lifting your hands in benediction i say potential verses because i can't prove that you have to lift your hands in a benediction you can read over them but 
I think that's what Paul's saying. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. I think there's something too. Please give me my blessing. We don't wrestle with God like Jacob did because our hips may get bad, but we're like, I want it, right? Give it to me. And Pastor David, as Levitical priest did and as Jesus Christ did, says on behalf of Jesus, here's your blessing and you get it. That's a whole other story, but he's given us a benediction. To have your hands open to receive it. Amen. Six, page six. Names are people and people are names. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sophiter, my kinsman, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Some of these names are Greek. Some of the names are Jewish. We've went over this a lot. This church is races of peoples coming together. That's what makes this church so beautiful. But my question is, B, what does the name Cordus mean? And where is he from? You may have it in your Bible. I don't know if your Bible is going to give you what, what it means. That's what his name means. Four. Fourth. I want you to see something here. They called him the fourth. He didn't even have a name. But he was known. I don't, I can't prove this. All the other names, you can sell if they're G- Jewish or Greek. Cordus may be Latin, may be Roman. You know what it tells me? God even cares about unnamed people. That's what I see out of it. I've read the book of Numbers. <laughs> I know God numbers his people. I know he cares about people who don't even think they're named. The dude's name was Fourth. Maybe he wasn't even rich enough to have a name. But Paul knew him, didn't he? And he made it in this book of Romans. That makes me happy. Because sometimes you feel like, does God even know who I am? Yeah, he even knew Fourth. (laughs) He knew that guy. He actually made it to the book of Romans. What's the theme? He might have. What is the theme of the book of Romans? I'll be real brief. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power to God of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I believe the theme of Romans is salvation starts with faith and it ends with faith. C. The righteous shall live righteously and faithfully by the Spirit. If you look at verse 1626 and verses 1-5 in Romans, you're going to see the obedience of faith. The book of Romans is book-ended with the obedience of faith. I've already made my statement in Romans 1. I'm not going to restate it. You can go back and listen. But let me just briefly give five things about verses 1626. 
The way you are saved is not arbitrary. It is very crucial for you to know how you are saved and why you are saved. The way you lived after you saved is also not arbitrary. Paul has spent what he spent 11 chapters to teach you how you are saved, where your salvation comes from, where God in the universe decides to save you. All those things are super important. And he starts in chapter 12. Now that you know you're saved, now let's talk about how you're living in the Spirit. The doctrine of justification and sanctification are vital to your faith. You cannot have one without the other. you got to have the foundation. Eleven chapters of foundation, right? And then you could say the oratory section, the teaching section. Yeah, the four different chapters by which you are learning how to live. Get one of these doctrines wrong, and you are in danger of damnation. If you don't understand how you were justified and made right before God, you are in danger of damnation. If you don't understand how you should live afterwards, you're also in danger of damnation. This is the reason the book of Romans is so important. Both false teaching and false living can lead one and others to hell. You can be in dangers of hell based upon what you believe about justification and what you believe about sanctification and you will drag others there with you. I'll end with this. F.F. Bruce, who's genius when it comes to Romans, in my opinion. But he says that verse 24, Tertius hands Paul the pen. Can he prove that? No, but I just loved it. In my mind, I absolutely love it. Because we know that Paul had some type of eye issue. You see it in Galatians. I wrote this with my own hands. Of course you did. Like it's huge letters, right? Because <laughs> you maybe couldn't see. Tertius is probably really trained at writing and he's really good at it. And I think he hands the, the, the pen to Paul. And this is what we hear. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for so long or from long ago has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever more through Christ Jesus amen brothers and sisters you could read that every day and jump for joy. Christ is the mystery. Paul is a man who experienced Christ. Paul is a man who knew Jesus. Paul is a man who said everything he memorized in the Old Testament finally made sense to him one day. That's all about Jesus. All of them are about Jesus. All the prophetic writings are about Jesus. All prophecy, what? Ends and begins with, with Jesus. Christ was the aim of the prophetic writings. The gospel of Christ now, what? Is getting sent to the nations. As we see Psalm 2, right? Kiss the sun, let's be angry. Like it's going to go forth to all the world. And then he makes it personalized. Obedience and the faith of Christ. Obedience of faith. I don't know a better sentence to end on 
than what Paul wrote, I believe, with his own pen.